Welcome to the And My Lollipop episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. Hi. Hello. Emily, we have an awesome special guest here. I agree. Ranjan Roy, introduce yourself. Who are you? Hi, I'm Ron John Roy. I write the Margins newsletter on Substack, where we talk about technology and business. And you had a neoliberal man crush on Bob Rubin in the early <laughs> 2000s. We are going to admit that in today's episode. I, I, I'm sh- ashamed to say it. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Robert Rubin and his... $12 billion acquisition of Banamex in Mexico and what became of that. We are going to talk about Wordle because, of course, we're going to talk about Wordle. Everyone is talking about Wordle and it's awesome. We are going to have a Slate Plus where we talk about Citadel and how it's going to become cryptoified. But mainly, we are going to talk about, or initially at least, we're going to talk about ZERP and the end thereof. And is this the end of ZERP? It's a big thing. It's a fun thing. You should listen to it. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I really want to talk about viral gaming because this is going to be um, a fun episode, Ranjan, but we have to start with the end of the world as we know it. Because, you know, when the end of the world as we know it happens, that's something we should probably cover on Slate Money. So tell us about this. Basically, the world as we know it is named Zerp, and now Zerp has died. Is that it? Zerp is dead, Felix. Zerp is dead, Emily. I'm sorry. It's gone. I was enjoying Zerp. Zerp was fun. Zerp was fun, but but for, for context, Zerp is zero interest rate policy. It's the Federal Reserve's no or low interest rate policy that's driven the past decade. And there's plenty of debate over how much its effect on financial markets overheating has been the case. But whatever it is, Zerp is gone. CPI is at 7%. Jerome Powell has retired the word transitory. The Federal Reserve will be hiking rates some amount of times this year. There's even an op-ed in Bloomberg yesterday saying there should be an emergency emergency 50 basis point hike. Um, so so ZERP is gone. Low interest rates are gone. So what's that going to do to the risk? Let, let me push back on this a little bit. For one thing, even an emergency 50 basis point hike would take interest rates to 50 basis points, which is nothing, which is to a first approximation zero. So in that sense, interest rates are still at zero. But more importantly, as you said, inflation is at 7%, which means that real interest rates are at like minus 7%. You can, the, the Fed could hike all the way to 1%, 2%, whenever, and we would still have massively negative real rates. Is that not still deep, deep into Zerpy territory? I mean, tell that to the markets that are down as we're speaking, I believe another uh, percent or two. I mean, what we've seen over the last week, because 
it's psychological. What's driven the last decade is the Powell put. It's BTFD, buy the effing dip. It's it's the idea that interest rates will always be low enough that it will encourage risk taking and there will always be buyers on the back end ready to kind of step in and take whatever you've bought and buy it at a higher price. And, and I do think there's, there's plenty of debate over around the natural rate of interest and real rates of interest and what where they would actually stabilize and kind of create a sound economy. But, but I think at the core, for the last five years, if you're running a business and you're doing some kind of discounted cash flow analysis or trying to clear a hurdle rate for an investment, whether it's zero or I agree, 25 basis points or 50 basis points isn't going to make your decision really over whether you invest in a factory or whether you invest more money. It's everyone has just been you know, taking as much risk as possible, buying back shares, just there's so much capital in the markets, it's looking for somewhere to go. And that's going to change. That's that mentality, that that assurance that it'll always be there, I think is going to be gone. But I mean, the markets did go a little crazy, like you said, Ranjan, but I feel like everyone was expecting um, Powell to say the trans, you know, Powell to, to, to signal he would raise rates and and all that's been sort of priced in at this point, like how much more of that drop off are we really going to see? Like people now know, okay, the Fed's going to raise rates a little bit this year, not a ton. It's still going to be relatively low rate environment. So, I mean, like, is it going to go, are things going to get much worse? I mean, of course we don't know, but... Yeah, Ranjan, what's going to happen to every single asset <laughs> class us. over Tell the course us. of 2022? We need, we need like full on forecasting. No, I mean, I, I think the, the big picture is not like what did the markets do over the first week and a half of 2022? Like, I think the big picture is what's happened to the sort of insatiable infinite risk appetite that has characterized basically everything that we talked about with Joe Weisenthal a couple of weeks ago, right? Which which is like just put everything you have into the riskiest possible assets and they will go up, whether that's crypto, whether that's, you know, even like weird things like I, I, people keep on emailing me about wine investment platforms. People are going crazy about investing in cars. You know, then like secondhand cars are going up for reasons, but then really secondhand cars there was like desirable you know a friend of mine was talking about these like vintage ford explorers going for a hundred thousand dollars and this kind of stuff and like nothing makes any sense anymore does the whole like money has no meaning because money is free mindset has that come to an end i'm i'm not entirely sure i can i can see an argument on both sides well, it, that I like insatiable, infinite risk appetite, I do think is going to go away because, I mean, it, it's all this sounds complicated, but at the core level, it's low interest rates move people up the risk curve. As an individual, there was a day when you, if you had a chunk of cash, you could put it in a savings account and get three or four or five percent or even more. Imagine nowadays, if you're at zero percent on your savings account, maybe you buy equities and next thing you know, you're YOLOing GameStop options. Like, like it forces everyone to move down and that's what it's supposed to do. And now money has value again, the more we start hiking rates. The more, you know, your savings account will yield some kind of percentage. When you say money has value, are you saying that like 
there will be meaningful interest rates on savings accounts? Yes, yeah. Risk-free assets. Money can be in a safe place, not actively pushing some kind of other asset and inflating it in any way, and you will receive some yield. Whether it's a savings account or a CD, certificate of depositor, everything starts moving a little higher, and you don't have to be out in the equity market buying uh, whatever. And my, and my, and I'm going to take the other side of that. I think that's false. I think that you know, this is where people really do care about real yields rather than nominal. And if you have inflation above five percent, then being able to get half a percent or one percent on your savings account is you're not going to be happy with that because you're just going to be seeing four percent of your uh four or five percent of your money just like evaporate every year you're going to want to put that money into something that can at least keep place with keep pace with inflation and historically speaking stocks have been a relatively good way a relatively good inflation hedge just because you know what these companies do that you're buying when you buy into the stock market is they sell things and the things that they're selling are rising in price with inflation and so generally the amount of money they make is going up with inflation so while there's no perfect inflation hedge the stock market isn't a bad inflation hedge and so i don't really buy this thesis that people are going to pull their money out of the stock market in an inflationary environment and put it into a guaranteed loss in real terms in a savings account. But stocks, but inflation is not good for stocks. Over the long mm-hmm. run, over, you know, a 10, 20 year horizon, I'm sure we could, it'll all even out. But but in the short term, I mean, inflation is not going to be good for the stock market. So I can't, like at the micro level, someone thinking, all right, I'll just move my money into an index fund because I feel the Dow will, you know, give me my 7% to match inflation when they're seeing the market come down on a daily basis. I, I don't think it, it'll correlate as easily as that. Again, over the long run. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there, there's two different things going on here, right? One, one is like, is inflation good for corporate earnings in like nominal terms? Yes, absolutely. You know, corporates are selling widgets and the widgets are going up in price so the co- corporate corporations are making more money. The, the second question is, is it good for stocks? And that's where you start going into questions of discounted cash flows and and discount rates and if you're basically buying earnings in 10 years time or in 20 years time and you're discounting those earnings at a higher interest rate then the value of those earnings is lower and therefore the stock price is lower so you can you can make an argument in both directions um, for, you know, is inflation good for stocks or is inflation bad for stocks? But I feel like we have the tiebreaker here, Emily. Ax- Axios Markets editor Emily Peck is going to tiebreak and say, like, does a small increase in interest rates really mark the end of an entire era of risk-taking and um, free money? <laughs> Insatiable and question. infinite risk appetite. <laughs> I-, I think a few things. I think maybe this signals the end of like crazy crypto prices or crazy wine stock plays or art share startups, but probably a a little rate increase isn't going to have a huge effect on the stock market. The other thing I worry about (laughs) maybe more um, with the Fed sort of like tightening back up is 
when the labor market's running really hot, it has really good downstream effects for the people in the U.S. and around the world that are like on the margins, like African-American workers, for example. Um, And their unemployment rates are still like twice that of the overall unemployment rate. And now if we're, if the Fed is going to start tightening back up, maybe some of that progress is halted. Maybe some of that is kind of halted. And and that's not so great for those, for those workers on the margins when the Fed is run again, like running the economy hot. It's, it's really good for, for those people, those workers. And that, that's kind of what I'm going to keep my eye on, I think. I I do think that's that's the most important question here is will the Fed hiking and being almost trying to be preemptive about inflation end up genuinely hurting any portion of the labor market? And obviously, kind of conventional economics always tells us that higher rates will necessarily lead to increased unemployment. But I can't imagine right now when large corporations can easily borrow money to simply buy back shares or again that any kind of investment allocation manager has really been making core business investment decisions not related to assets and stocks and other type of financial assets be whether again if it's 0 or 50 base points their hiring will change now clearly again if it if it affects the overall market which it very well could or it could not then maybe there's downstream effects, but but there's this there's this almost weird way of a Jerome Powell or other people on the Federal Reserve always trying to talk about equity uh, being equitable in the labor market and you know the labor uh, market participation of underrepresented groups, but meanwhile their actions are just fueling financial asset bubbles. And they're trying to use one to cover the other. At least it's felt like that over the last few years because they haven't made a big dent in solving those problems. Well, they've made a decent dent. I mean, unemployment among, you know, black Americans and other marginalized groups, yes, it's higher than among whites, but it's come down a lot. And the sheer number of job openings remains vastly higher than the number of job seekers. And I don't think that a series of rate hikes is going to change that calculus in the foreseeable future. I think the labor market is going to be tight even after a whole series of rate hikes. I can't see anything that would change that dynamic. Um, Emily had a fantastic piece in Axios about the flywheel of doom, which is basically the you know the 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 structural shortage of workers in the American economy. And so long as there's a structural shortage of workers in the American economy, I think that most everyone who can you know who who wants a job can find one we have unemployment at 3.9% you know i i don't see that changing that soon so that's that's kind of the positive thing here about the fed they have this dual mandate of full employment and low inflation or 2% inflation we should say and Historically, that's been considered to be a trade-off, right? They're like, if we want to bring inflation down, then what we're going to wind up doing is hurting employment. In this case, I don't think that's a trade-off. In this case, I think that they can raise rates without worrying too much about what it's going to do to employment. Yeah, I completely agree. And I do think the dual mandates, the classic notion of what the Fed is supposed to be pursuing, but the correlation or the connection between 
interest rates and employment we've already seen broken over the last year and a half. Again, rates are low, but as we said, there's massive gaps between jobs needing to be filled and jobs being filled. And we realize that it's not just monetary policy that can solve it. It's, you know, any other type of policy, the virus is controlling the labor market as much as Jerome Powell right now. Um, So this idea that they have the magic spigot that can make job creation go up and down. I think that connection broke a while ago. So the idea that they are very heavily and publicly factoring that into the way they're communicating their decisions, again, I don't think is the kind of the most uh, most appropriate way to approach this. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Banamex because I can't not talk about Banamex. You guys, can I just tell the listeners? Yes, you, you can tell them. You can tell them what I did. So Felix is allegedly on book leave and it's late later in the evening and I'm new in this job and there's a flurry of messages on the Axios Slack because Felix is so excited that <laughs> Citibank is selling its Mexican consumer <laughs> banking division called Banamex, which it bought 20 years ago. He is so excited. He's jumping in the slack, giving us <laughs> his hot take. And the next thing I know, I'm told, you better write about, not better, you should write about this tomorrow. And I'm like, cool. So I can explain this, I think, a little bit to you all. But Felix, I'll let you take it from here since you're so excited about this. You had to leave. I'm excited about this. This is, this, is my, this is my, I remember, I remember vividly when it happened. And and Ranjan, you remember this too, right? I mean, this is like we are all like, you know, old people around these parts who who remember the the NAFTA dream, right? The the city spending twelve billion dollars acquiring Banco Nacional de Mexico was like the apotheosis of everything. Like the um what you had was um, Bob Rubin, who had been at Treasury and was one of the architects of NAFTA, then moving over to this important vice chairman position at Citigroup where he was making $10 million a year. And the one thing he does as soon as he gets there is he spends $12 billion and buys a Mexican bank and we're bringing Mexico and the United States together and there's going to be free-flowing capital back and forth and the Banamex brand is going to be really powerful among the Mexican community in America. And this is like globalism, probably the height of the sort of globalist ideals and financially, it worked out quite well for Citigroup. It was a good acquisition. They made a lot of money. Banamex was a very profitable business. And especially after the financial crisis in 2008, the 
extra stream of earnings they had from Banamex was extremely valuable to them. And they and that kind of diversification they had was was great. Banamex was also probably the best run consumer bank they had in the world. Um, better, certainly better run than the American bank, which, you know, everyone loves to call shitty bank. They had one other one in Poland called Handlowy, which is also well run. But like, this was a place they could learn how to run a consumer bank. It was part of their global ambitions. They've been a very global bank for over 100 years. And so this was a very natural progression for City And then, Mexico being Mexico, everything blew up. There was a bunch of scandals. There was money laundering. There was corruption. Um, Banamex was always the sort of in-house bank of the Mexican government and the elite and the, um, you know, the president's brother and all of this kind of stuff, doing dodgy stuff. And and so then it, um, yeah, then the guy who was basically in charge of Banamex and actually at one point in charge of all of Citigroup's consumer banking globally, Manuel Medina Mora gets pushed out. This woman, Jane Fraser, gets pulled in to run Latin America. She's like, we need to get a grip on this. We can't let it be its own fiefdom anymore. So she rebrands it as City Banamex. She makes it more City Bankish. Um, she eventually becomes CEO. She's now the CEO. And when she's CEO, she's just like, you know what? Let's just, we, we're selling off all of our other consumer banks. We're not really a consumer bank. We're basically a corporate bank. So let's sell off this one as well. We can probably get a good price for it. Phew. I, I don't know if I'm as excited by Felix by the news, but I will say, I, I agree. I think it's, uh, it's pretty representative of where the world is now versus where it was in 2001 when Citigroup bought Banamex. And, and Felix mentioned Bob Rubin. I will admit I had a bit of a neoliberal mentor crush on Bob Rubin uh, circa 2003, 2004. I was, uh, I was working at Bank of America on the emerging markets desk. So in kind of the hotbed of globalization dreams and an American bank is going to go global and the emerging markets as an asset class are going to become the future. And remember, Bob Rubin was kind of this perfect emblem of he worked under his secretary, secretary of the Treasury under Clinton, vice chairman of Citigroup, pushing globalization um, to the entire world. And remember, that was when globalization could do no wrong. China entered the WTO. Everything was win-win. Trade is good for all parties involved. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that now – it just quietly dies off to the side in a in a press release that only Felix cares about um, that, uh, <laughs> that 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 globalization dream is no more and an international and emerging markets for banks is just not that exciting anymore. So Emily, you tell me about your th thesis because you had a great piece about how this isn't just about city. It's like every bank has has pulled back from this. Yeah, and it's basically the end of of an era for the dream of global consumer banking. It's just not a good business for these big banks to be in. Um, country to country, like banking for consumers is kind of like a mom and pop enterprise. Like you go to the bank that's closest to your house in a lot of ways. That's changing with online banking to be sure. But it is this sort of like mom and pop business. And for a global bank like a Citibank or whatever, to open all these little branches around the world, it's not as easy as like opening a bunch of Walmarts around the world. It's more complicated. The regulations are more complicated and they just, 
it was too they they couldn't make it work really well like they got so they're getting out and it's not and yeah it's not just city it's although um, it's it's, fu- it's funny players. you should mention Walmart because they are one of um Banamex's biggest competitors in in Mexico. Um, Walmex has a has a big a big and successful bank in Mexico because they're allowed to. They want to have a bank in the United States, but they're not allowed to, so they don't. But it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see who buys it. the The two Mexican billionaires on everyone's lips are Ricardo Salinas and Carlos Slim, both of whom own smaller Mexican banks. They're probably interested. There's a lot of sort of patriotic fervor going on because the big three Mexican banks are all owned by foreigners, um, Santander, BBVA, and um, City. And now they're like, we can get one of them back and make it Mexican again. There will be non-Mexicans bidding for it. I, I think everyone expects Scotiabank. The, the Canadians are still into the whole NAFTA thing, even if the Americans are not. So Scotiabank's going to be interested. Um, I think the Brazilians are, might be interested, like Banco Itaú, um, Itaú Unibanco is a huge Brazilian bank, which has to want to be interested in that. Maybe even, and this is the crazy one, the the big um, fintech unicorn success story of the moment, which is Nubank, which is the online bank in Mexico, in Brazil rather, would be might be interested in this ancient, kludgy, bricks and mortar albatross just to get itself like 10% of the Mexican market at a, at a stroke, at a relatively cheap price. People are saying, um, well, people told you what, Emily, like five to $8 billion they'll get for this. I think it's going to go for significantly more than that. Yeah, that, that's what the analyst estimates were. But I mean, who knows? Things... It, it is still a Zerpy world a little bit, right, Ron John? It's like, still a little bit Zerpy. For, for today, it's for today. The, the, the one thing I think we should we should mention is that, um, you know, if Citibank bought it for $12 billion, and even if it sells it for like $8 billion, that doesn't mean they've lost money. They have extracted a lot of profits out of Banamex over the past 20 years. And more to the point, they have built up a huge corporate banking franchise in Mexico yeah, that they could away. never have done I, 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 otherwise. And they're going to keep that. And that's probably worth $12 billion to them right there. So selling the consumer bank, you know, for less than they quote unquote bought it for does not mean it was a bad investment at all. I think it really was a good investment. If you're a bank today, do you focus on international as a vector of growth or given you can go into climate finance or crypto or any other kind of like digital finance and you know there there's any other number of avenues for growth these days if you're a bank do you is it again because as we said 20, 2001 this was the dream that you'll go into every new market and take over and offer any number of new products. Is it just a lot easier? And are there other ways to grow nowadays that you don't need to get yourself tied up into? Well, I think City would tell you that they're still going to serve rich people around the world (laughs) and do institutional (laughs) banking. So they're just giving up on the dream of consumers around the world. But like ultra wealthy people is fine. Institutions are fine. Everything you talked about, whether it's climate or crypto or anything else, is global, right? The corporate banking is global. Corporations are global. If you want to bank the biggest companies in the world, you have to bank them globally. So it's not that you, you're you retreating from having a global footprint, 
But what you're doing, and and even like the ultra rich are global, and City loves to say that they want to bank lots of very rich folk who who jet around the world. Like the City private bank of you know private banking is, eh, it's not like there's no way they're competing with the big private banks like the big Swiss guys, you know, or even yeah, like. I'm not taking that part of their rhetoric too seriously, but for the corporations, they're they're a real player. And then the question is, do you do you have like that physical, visible branch network globally? I'm like I used to travel around the world, and basically every single um, city I went to in the world had a city bank in it, and it was like this is like a global brand. That is no longer going to be the case. The other big bank that really wanted that global footprint was HSBC. It had a big global ad campaign saying, like, we are everywhere. Wherever you want to be, we are going to be there. They've kind of pulled back. They're like a shadow of that now. Standard Chartered is big in Africa, but it's not really global. Santander is probably the closest to a global bank, but that's mainly just Iberia. And yeah, they're still trying to be global. But like, I think Santander is the last one standing, no? I just got this weird theory. Can I can I say it and then we can decide? Yeah, I love like weird theories. Please. So I think bank branches themselves are at this stage, twenty twenty one, mostly like a marketing move. Like just like you said, Felix, you go around the world, you see cities everywhere. It's like really great marketing for the bank more than anything. Well, I mean, they make money, fine, but it's a marketing move. <laughs> yeah. But like today in the in 2021, in the COVID world, being out in the physical world and having a marketing presence in the physical world is maybe less important than it has ever been. So the value of that like brick and mortar type marketing is much lower. And it's better to like spin it forward and see what you can do with like fintech or all the other things Ranjan mentioned and do more marketing in a diverse global way, maybe a lot of it on apps or the internet or whatnot. It's just not as important to have that physical footprint anymore. Just think how many how many TikToks you could make if you <laughs> like with the money you save on branch opening. Yeah, exactly. If I'm hearing Emily correctly, branches in the metaverse. Is that where we're trying to go? I mean, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That's no, what it I'm really hearing. goes to banks anymore. I mean, I know I just said I'm like, you can get me for inconsistency in this segment, but no one really needs bank branches anymore. I do all my banking, you know, on my app, on my phone. Most people do. Like, no one's going. I used to go to, with my father every week to get his cash for the week at the bank and my lollipop. But, like, literally no one does that anymore. Like, we don't we don't need these branches anymore at all. So why would they need branches globally where it's kind of like a pain to manage? And, and you run into every, you know, p- periodic corruption scandals. Yeah, and periodic corruption scandals. And Money no laundering's never good. Never good. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's talk about Wordle. This is all I've really wanted to talk about. So I get to talk about Wordle now. I am absurd. You have no idea how many text threads, group chats, various different sets of people I've been talking about Wordle to in various degrees of granularity. I have a friend who, you know, actually has created his own Wordle clone so that we can now play two different Wordles. Only his Wordle clone has a larger number of possible answers than the actual wordle which only has like two and a half thousand answers it's it's a total thing um it's one of the few sort of unabashedly unalloyed good things of 2022 everyone can be happy about it except for maybe a handful of english people who got very upset about an americanism this week for those of listeners who aren't on your threads on your text chains or on twitter <laughs> we probably should tell them what wordle is right we should should get that out. All right, Emily, bring it. What is Wordle? Wordle is a word game created by a dude in Brooklyn called Josh Wardle. And it is a word game that there's only one puzzle every day. And you basically get six chances to figure out what the six-letter word is that day. Five-letter word. And five-letter word, sorry. Six chances, though, still. And so you guess the letters and then Wordle tells you if you got the letter right or and the position of the letter right and you keep guessing until you get the word and I am of middling skill at this but people are very into it it's like one of these things that have taken over Twitter if you go there everyone it seems like I follow but maybe this is like a New York media thing are all posting their Wordle scores kind of like how they used to post their spelling bee scores in 2020 but now it's Wordle and it's and it's a it's a wonderful it's it's pure and un, it's pure like it only happens once a day it's not trying to it's not trying to drag you into some ecosystem it's not trying to sell you anything there's no upsell um there's no ads there's no app well there's some some terrible person created a wordle app um and called it wordle because there's no ip there's no copyright do not download the wordle app do not give that man your money because that is a horrible copyright and there are now it is so easy, and all of the code is right there on the page. You just download it. It runs in your web browser, so it's very easy to copy and paste and create clones if that's what you want to do. So now I have friends who are doing it in Italian, who are doing it in Spanish, you know, because people are creating all of these, you know, foreign language versions because it's really easy to do that. And and it's just like this wonderful feeling that the whole world has found this fun thing that it can do in a pure and good way. So now, Ranjan, you're going to tell me why it's all evil, right? No, no. I think, <laughs> I genuinely think Wordle, the game, I think part of the joy of it is, is it kind of represents that utopian internet that uh, the web one, is it, or web two, I've lost count, that we were all supposed to enjoy. Again, the created not-for-profit. There is no hook or scam to the game. Every time I played it, I keep waiting for some kind of pop-up to show up asking for money or something to happen, and it doesn't. So I, I think part of the, the virality of it has been people actually 
being shocked that someone could create something just for enjoyment and just for bringing people together on the internet. It, it sounds crazy. Yeah, right like he, he's created a viral game and he hasn't become a millionaire and that's good. Yeah. Oh, and he created for his his partner, for his wife, because she liked like doing word games. So at first it was just he. And he she picked out all her. of the words, like the the yes. two thousand three hundred ninety nine words or whatever it is. It's just like the ones that she recognized. And the one thing I will say, because I have gone down so many rabbit holes, the one little um, nugget that I will I will give the Slate Money listeners if you play Wordle, which you probably do because everyone does, um, is that. The letter S is much less common than you think it is, and it almost never appears at the end of the word because there are no plurals and there's no like oh. present participles. So don't like if you want a letter that like the S does appear, it's more likely to appear at the in the first position than the last position. The letter that is very common in the in the last position that you might not expect is Y. I can I can see that I can see that. <laughs> I mean, I think also though this a question: Do you think Wordle will be being played three months from now or six months from now? These these dynamics around viral gaming, where it kind of and especially again making it so easy to post your score to Twitter, obviously was the key viral dynamic. I mean, we've seen these games come and go we've seen these kind of crazes do you think we're are you going to be playing wordle six months from now i think it really just depends how many people are texting me their results every morning because so long as people are texting me their results every morning i'm gonna have to do it and and see whether i got better or worse than them um i think that's the that's the other really um important part of the game dynamic is that everyone on the planet plays the same word every day so you're all playing exactly the same game. And that feels like a collective endeavor, which I like. Um, the one thing which is a little bit hidden in the top right-hand corner is this thing called hard mode. You can turn it on. And then if you turn on hard mode, then your score has a little asterisk um, next to it when you when you post it to Twitter. Um Hard mode is what it's also like naive mode where you basically have to turn every single word into a guess and you have to use all of the letters that you know that you have. It does make it a little bit, you know, a little bit less creative, but definitely harder. Speaking of flash in the pan games, I was thinking about um, this week, Zynga, the creators of Farmville, were bought for $11 billion, which I could not believe because I thought they had a flash in the pan business model, but apparently it's worth $11 billion. Does anyone play Farmville anymore? No, they, of course not. It, it is important. They did IPO <laughs> at twelve billion dollars ten years or eleven years ago. So, so from a from a ROI perspective, not too great. But yeah, I think I kept, when I saw that news, it definitely made me think about Wordle and the viral game dynamics. And almost Zynga is kind of the opposite utopia vision of this utopia, where it just Facebook rode it to kind of growth, Zynga rode Facebook to growth, and Facebook just cast it aside in 2012, 2013, and let them kind of wither away. And and again, Farmville would upsell you on any number of uh, paid types of uh, additions. So yeah, I think, I mean, even Felix making the point that 
it's one word that we all come together around that we break out of our filter bubbles. I'm even getting more sold on Wordle after talking to you guys, I think, as <laughs> the perfect vision of the internet here. Zynga, the one thing it did manage, it realized that it couldn't be a parasite on Facebook. So it did wind up doing a bunch of acquisitions. It's quite big on, you know, Web3 crypto-y stuff. I think that's what Take-Two was really buying. I don't think Take-Two was like, oh, the future of social gaming and Facebook is is why they bought Zynga. But yeah, that that Zynga is the the exact polar opposite. This is like the Wordle is the anti-Zynga. And the, and just the the aesthetics of it, right? It's it's almost like the Google homepage, you know, it's just a blank white page with some squares on it that's it and it's so clean oh it's so refreshing my my heart will be crushed when they announce that tiger global has invested a uh, hundred million dollars into the josh seed round of wordle no i believe in josh wardle in, please in josh Brooklyn. please no tiger global talking about crazy investments do you remember yo yo Yo. Yes, of course. <laughs> Greatest app that ever existed. It was, it was the future of the internet. Right? It was an app you where could you just, could say yo to your friends. It's the only thing it allowed you to do is just say yo. <laughs> and it raised, I think, three or four million dollars. But but actually, Josh Wardle, one of the other things he created, he created the button on Reddit. Not sure if you saw this, that uh and I remember when it came out, another kind of weird utopian almost art art piece of internet culture. Although you had you to, went to keep re- it pressed down, you, right? You just pressed it. You just pressed and pressed down and and it did nothing. You don't know what it would do. There was no reason to press it, yet <laughs> hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people would press the button on Reddit. And uh yeah, it was he he knows how to go viral. He knows something, how to uh bring some joy to our lives. And he's not abusing that power. So we can all appreciate that as well. Um, numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Yeah. My number is... <laughs> <laughs> my number is 94%. And this comes from the piece you were talking about earlier, Felix, that I wrote um, for Axios on Friday. 94% of the unemployed workers in December who said they don't want a job... 94% of them were over 55 years old. That is crazy. It's it's about 3.2 um, million people. And so the point is, old workers are really still sitting on the sidelines. A lot of them afraid for their health. But the a lot of them are just like chilling out because their stocks went up so much and their retirement accounts are looking sweet. So they're not working either. Some of them are grandparents who are taking care of children, blah, 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 because we're still living in a weird time. But um, I feel like the story of older workers not working is not an appreciated tale because a lot of the times people retire and go back into the job market. Like you might retire from your fancy job and then decide like, oh, I want to take a few hours. I was talking to someone who... They wanted they retired, but then they wanted to like work at Home Depot for whatever reason because they like puttering around the house and they thought it would be like a fun thing to do in retirement. But people don't want to take jobs like that right now because they're they they the word is they suck because um, you know retail is hard right now. People are getting sick all the time. It's just not safe. Anyway, until all these older workers or some of them come back in, I think the labor market will be crazy no matter what the Fed does. That that was the big story of two thousand. At the height of the boom in like the dot com boom in like ninety nine two thousand, the you know the monthly payrolls report would keep on going up 
um, while the unemployment rate didn't go down. And the un- and the reason was that all of these old people would just wind up getting sort of like dragged out of retirement because the companies were so desperate to hire them. And they're like, well, I can't say no to this. This is a great o- offer. Also, a lot of them were the people who would like, you know, had programmed the original computers with the Y2K bugs and they were the only people who could unprogram them. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, Remember Y2K? But that that phenomenon of, you know, when a job market is really hot and people are willing to pay really good salaries, then that will bring unemployed workers off the sidelines and get them to take jobs is something that I've been wa- I've been waiting for that shoe to drop for a while and it just hasn't dropped. Because COVID. It's the pandemic. Because COVID, yeah. Interest rates don't affect employment in the same way that we think they would. <laughs> There's all these other factors. My my number is is 17, which is the number of English Premier League clubs with crypto sponsorship deals. There are 20 English Premier League clubs. Wow. So 17 of the 20 have crypto sponsorship deals. There was a wonderful article, which I will try and put in the show notes if I can find it, which um, which talked about Floki, right? Floki is a shit coin that was invented. It is a coin that is named after Elon Musk's pet Shiba Inu, whose name is Floki. It is not Dogecoin. It is not Shiba coin. It is Floki. It is called Floki Inu. Floki Inu. And it is named after Elon's dog. And it has already signed up Napoli and Bayer Leverkusen and like some club in some big club in Russia. Like they are sponsoring a whole bunch of huge soccer clubs. And they're just, you know, that they're, they're like a fourth tier meme coin. I don't understand actually how a decentralized coin can sponsor a soccer club. Am I missing something? It- in my brain? I don't That's get it. That's a fair question. <laughs> That's a very fair question. I don't Someone is understand. making a good amount of money somewhere. What, what happens is that every time every time you buy Floki, like 4% of that money goes into some pool to like make Floki pumpier and more speculative. And, they, and they, they take that money and they use it to buy soccer, soccer um, deals. Why would you yeah, do that? Yeah, the whole thing is... <laughs> why wouldn't so why would more, so more people coin that oh because more people then it's mark you're paying for the marketing of the coin you're paying for the marketing but, but uh, one of one of the interesting things about crypto is the way in which it has really really aggressively gone into sports as a way of reaching you know young men who are hard to reach otherwise so there's this ad featuring like Matt Damon that is on every sports cast and all of the sports fans are getting heartily sick of it. Um, there's the crypto.com arena in Los Angeles. I think FTX sponsored an arena. Basically every crypto company, if they're, if they're going out and they're spending huge amounts of money marketing themselves in the real world, they are doing it in sports. And that connection between crypto and sports is something which I have to admit I didn't see coming. Uh, but yeah, Ranjan, what's your number? That that could lead into my number two, two point zero, 
2% is where I'm looking for for the 10-year yield to go. And when it hits there, it was last there, July 2019. And I think that's when we will all officially say ZERP is dead. It's kind of inching there. A few months ago, it tried to make a move towards there. There always has to be some psychological number in the financial markets where we all kind of say something has fundamentally changed. And I think 2% on the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is that number and okay but so can can i just like to be clear about this are you saying that we didn't have zerp in july 2019 like if if like the end of zerp and this like end of an era thing is this era really like only a couple years old and and like even as recently as july 2019 we were not in a zerpiverse no, no, they, there was there was a hiking cycle from December 2015 to I think December 2018, and then it started trailing off a bit. So so the zero went away for a few years in there, but the attitude didn't. The mentality again, the idea was the moment the market freaked out in December 2018, Jerome Powell started cutting, even though nothing else fundamentally changed about unemployment or inflation. It was simply the stock market had a bit of a freak out and they started started pushing down rates. To me, now what's changed is there's inflation. And again, that's why these these markers that in the past wouldn't have been as significant, that's why right now there's definitely going to be big psychological markers that the entire market's going to look at because inflation's here. So so in the past you could just cut the rates whenever you needed to. Now you can't do that anymore. For me, for me, I think that the 10 years yield that I'm looking at is not the 10 year US Treasury yield so much as it's like the 10 year um, Bund yield. Like if I want to see 10 year yields in Europe above zero, that's that to me is like, so long as you have 10 year negative 10 year yields anywhere in Europe or anywhere in the world, really, I, I'm still going to hold that we we still live more or less in a zero interest rate world because as Ranjan knows better than anyone you know everything can wind up getting swapped from one currency into another currency and if you know if we're if we have yields which when you swap them into euros are still negative they're still kind of negative yeah and and, uh, we we avoided talking about NERP versus ZERP which is (laughs) negative interest rate because NERP just does not sound as good as ZERP so Um, maybe next time we will talk about NERP. We have so much more to talk about, but we are not going to do it um, in this show unless you are a Slate Plus listener because we are going to talk about a little bit more about crypto, actually. We're going to talk about the crypto investment in Citadel Securities, which is Ken Griffin's hedge... Well, it's not his hedge fund, it's his bank. Um, He was always a bit of a crypto skeptic, but now he's taken a billion dollars of crypto money. So we'll talk a little bit about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, thank you, Ranjan, for coming on. It's been awesome having you. Thank you for having me. And and thanks to all of you guys for listening. And thanks to Shana for producing. And we will be back next week on Slate Money. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.